Hello, I'm Healing the Podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded on, the Wurundjeri region. We pay further acknowledgement to country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples here today. Welcome to Hello, I'm Healing the Podcast. I'm your host, Renee, and I'm so excited to have you here. This is the podcast for sharing stories, experiences, and journeys of medical traumas and illness. A safe space for you to feel educated and hopefully less alone in whatever you are going through. This is the podcast of breaking down topics that some find taboo or uncomfortable, and instead help empower you, help educate you, help you feel less alone, and more importantly, help you heal. Because at the end of the day, you aren't alone. So without further ado, let's get started. Before today's episode, I wanted to jump in here and let you know that Hello I'm Healing is now offering six-week emotional breakthrough sessions. These breakthrough sessions will allow you to remove negative emotions such as anger, sadness, guilt, grief, feeling not good enough, and so much more. You'll be able to clear your past traumas and create new patterns that allow you to live a life that you dream of. You'll become aware of the language that you use and can support your new way of life. Create goals, visions, dreams, and desires that are now in alignment. So if If you're ready to let go of the past and move forward, head to the link in the Hello I'm Healing Instagram page and book your free clarity call today. Hello guys, welcome back to another episode of Hello I'm Healing, the podcast. I am so excited for today's episode and I'm so excited for today's guest. And today we have Taylor and she will be talking us through how she navigated the medical system, what her diagnosis was what life looked like through that process. And I'm just really, really excited. So Taylor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Renee. It's great to be here. I'm really excited to have you here. And I'm really excited that you reached out because I'm not sure if we would have connected otherwise. I mean, hopefully we would have, but it's just really great to have you here. And it's really beautiful to me that I'm able to create such a safe space for people to come on and share their stories and be vulnerable. And I just feel really honored that you reached out and that you wanted to share with, you know, the audience and on my platform. So thank you. Yeah, it's um, when I saw the article on news.com.au about, it was originally about your story and your diagnosis, your cancer diagnosis, which is what kind of attracted me to the article in the first place, because I'm always interested to read about other young people and their experiences with the medical system, especially when it comes to cancer. Um, And then, yeah, it was just as I was reading the article, I saw that you had a podcast and I thought, you know, what a great idea to jump on and have a talk, not just about my experience with cancer as a young person, but navigating all the things that come with it, the medical system, financial side of things. You just had a completely different point in your life. So Yeah, I agree. I think it's such an interesting time for an illness to occur because, you know, you're just getting into life and all of that fun stuff and and all of a sudden, you know, this massive bombshell hits you. But Would you like to just let us know who you are, a little bit about you, where you're from, and all of that 
good stuff about you. Sure. Uh, so my name is Taylor and I've recently turned 30 years old. I live in the absolutely beautiful Scenic Rim, which is about an hour south of Brisbane in Queensland. And I'm a uh, public relations consultant. Um, I've just recently returned to work working for myself, which is a big step after two and a half years out of the workforce. It's just myself and my husband and a very temperamental 10-year-old dog <laughs> and a seven-year-old cat. And yeah, I just like we like getting out on weekends and just exploring the region. Um, it's such a beautiful part of the world. That's about it really. Amazing. It's such a beautiful area in Australia. My partner and I are hoping to get up there soon and we're looking for a rental and it seems to be impossible, but I know that it will come. Like many Victorians, I think majority of Victorians have headed up that way, which is quite funny. Yeah, it def it is. It's amazing up here. I've never lived anywhere else. I've like in terms of outside of Queensland, I've lived in a few different places in Queensland but um I've never lived in another state so I'm pretty biased but I mean everyone's got to be relocating up here for a reason don't they yeah absolutely you can't really go past it and such beautiful weather all the time and so much to do there like it's absolutely stunning yeah all righty do you want to just um let's just dive straight into it and do you want to tell us what your diagnosis was and what that looked like. So I was diagnosed originally uh, just with bowel cancer. And then once I had my surgery and pathology was sent away um, and then came back, that was changed uh, or upgraded, I suppose, better defined as stage 4C metastatic bowel cancer. So that is the most advanced stage of bowel cancer. Yeah, Wow. Yeah, it's not necessarily a terminal diagnosis and it wasn't when I was given it originally, but it did turn into one and has now turned back. So that is the roller coaster of cancer. And when were you diagnosed? How old were you at the time of your diagnosis? So I was diagnosed on the 14th of December 2019. I was 27 years old and it was, it just couldn't have come at a worse time. I mean, everyone says that, I suppose, but I had just finished studying my Bachelor of Arts, majoring in journalism. Uh, I had finally graduated after six and a half years in August 2019. I'd been studying by distance while I'd been working the whole time. And I'd also just gotten a really fantastic job moving from uh, working for a major newspaper to public rela uh, relations for local government. And it was just such a fantastic uh, organisation and such a great team. And I just felt really happy and comfortable and everything was going really well for, for me and my husband, who at the time was just my partner. And yeah, then I just suddenly was diagnosed with cancer out of nowhere. So I'd love to know what made you go to the doctor in the first place. Did you have any common side effects or symptoms or what really made you go, okay, something's not right? So I'd been having mainly bloating, like quite, like quite noticeable bloating. And it seemed to get worse 
as the day went on. And then I realized it was the more I ate, the more bloated I became. I was like, oh, you know, like I'm eating a lot of carbs and, you know, probably not eating like as good a diet as I could be because I was so busy. And, but you know, yeah, you just think it's normal. And of course the pain always seemed to be worse when I got my period. So again, you're like, oh, this is just normal. But then I started to get heartburn as well and I'd never had heartburn before and it kind of took a couple of months for it to all click for me that all the symptoms were related and that they weren't normal because when I started having them I actually went to two weddings one week apart so I had one wedding in Sydney and then oh sorry the other way around I had one wedding in Townsville Um, And then we flew down to Sydney and I had another wedding in Sydney and they were only seven days apart. And I thought, you know, I've probably overindulged. I'm eating all this rich food and I'm drinking alcohol, which is extremely rare for me. So I thought it would just settle down. That was in the September. And then, you know, it just kept happening. And then by the time I thought, gee, I really have to go and see a doctor about this. Um, it was early December and I was starting to get pain with the bloating to the point where sometimes it was so severe, like I actually thought I was going to pass out. And again, this all seemed to coincide with eating and my maternal aunt, my mother's sister, she has celiac disease. So, you know, my first thought was, okay, I've got to go and see a doctor because I've probably got celiac disease. Just you know, the bloating, the pain, the fact that it coincided with eating and got worse the more I ate later in the day. Which is also common. So yeah, really that bloating and the pain was what made me go and see a doctor because the heartburn did go away, but the bloating and the pain just got worse and worse. Yeah. Wow. So a lot's happening in your life. And how long before you were actually diagnosed? Yeah, I was extremely lucky that I had a combination of a doctor who coincidentally it was my first time ever seeing her because we hadn't long moved to Emerald and I'd never been sick before since we'd been there so I hadn't needed to see a doctor but I had a I had a coincidentally amazingly had a great combination of a doctor who where she trained in India she was actually a gynecological uh, surgeon so she was quite experienced with I suppose women's issues if you want to use a broad term and the fact that my cancer was so advanced when I presented to that uh, when she did a physical examination of my abdomen because she was asking me you know where does it hurt and she's pressing around she was actually she told me later she was actually able to feel the the lump from where the tumor was sitting in my colon because my belly was so distended in that one section and so because she was was quite experienced she was quickly like okay we have to rule out a bunch of different things straight away so I went and saw her on a Monday and she took a full set of bloods like to to look at absolutely everything and she sent me for an x-ray to rule out you know anything super basic that could be picked up on an x-ray which isn't a lot you know it's mainly bone stuff and that that came back clear then she thought okay I might have uterine fibroids which was a fair assumption I was 27 I didn't have any children you know so the longer 
you don't like the older you are without having children, the higher your risk is of developing uterine fibroids. And I did have some when I went and had a internal ultrasound, but they weren't big enough to be the cause of the problem. And so this was Wednesday by the time this happened. So only two days later. And she called me and she said, you know, your bloods have come back and you and it's showing that you're severely anemic. So I want to take some more bloods and just break down your actual iron and, and see what's causing it. And she said, at the same time, I want to send you for a CT scan because, you know, we've done the first two lots of scans and it's nothing obvious. So it has to be something else because we know it's in that area. And I was super busy at work. This was like two weeks before Christmas. And, you know, when you, cl- when you close over the Christmas period, it's always flat out. So work was just really, really busy. And she had one of her nurses call me on the Saturday morning and say, you know, your blood tests have come back and um, the doctor needs to see you urgently. And I didn't really think anything of it. I just thought, you know, oh, she's going to she's gonna tell me I've got celiac disease, you know. So I went in to see her. You know, there was no history in my family. I didn't even know anyone who'd ever had cancer uh, other than my mother-in-law, you know, and she'd had breast cancer, which is completely different. And, um, yeah, I just honestly thought I was going to go in and she was going to tell me I had celiac disease. And I went in and she said, you know, your kidney and liver markers are all over the place and you're severely anemic. And, you know, she said, have you had that CT scan yet? It hasn't, the results haven't come back. And I said, no, look, I've been really, really busy. And she said, I need you to go up to the hospital right now. And I need you to have an emergency CT. Were you worried at this time or were you still really chill about the whole thing? No, still just chill because I, I don't know if I was already in denial without realizing or what, but I, wasn't even worried at that point and so I went up wow you sound exactly like me (laughs) when I was going through that yeah I went up and like I had I've, I've never been sick I had no experience with hospitals or anything and so you know even when they're like oh we're just going to put in a cannula I was like yeah that you know had no idea what it is and then they're stabbing me and I was like oh my god this hurts But yeah, I had the first CT scan and I thought, oh yeah, you know, this is all right. But then I sat there for about two hours in the emergency department and then they came back and said, we have to do another CT. And that's when I thought, okay, something's probably not right, you know, if if they're getting me to do a second one. So I was there for about seven hours. Then after the second CT scan was done, the doctor who was on call that day came in and saw me. And I just remember he had this look on his face and I thought, oh, this is not good. You know, he looked, he had that look doctors get where they're, you know, they just, they're, they're trying to look really sympathetic, but professional at the same time. Um, and did you have anyone with you? Yeah. So I had Joe, my husband with me because um, we didn't have any family in Emerald, all our family lived uh, away from us. We'd moved there for his job. Yeah, so he was there. I think he knew because he'd already been through something very similar with his mum. And yeah, I just remember this doctor sitting down and saying to me, you know, we normally wouldn't tell you this without doing further 
tests, but it is extremely obvious from your CT scan that you have cancer in your bowel. He said there's a giant tumour in the middle of your colon and it's just about to explode. Wow. So that's crazy news to hear. And I'd love for you to take us back to that moment and what was going through your head? What was the thoughts? Were you able to process it? Have you processed it now? How long did it take to process? I mean, you were only 27 and you truly believed that you potentially had celiac disease, which is very manageable and people live with that every day. So take us back to that moment. I remember very clearly at that point, just completely shutting down and just going into, I guess, like self-preservation mode. So my first question, like I, I remember I just shut down everything, all my thoughts just shut down. And the first thing I blurted out was, okay, what's next? And that's kind of a consistent theme throughout my treatment and all the ups and downs is that every time something like that has happened where there's been a setback, I've just straight away gone, okay, well, what, what's next, you know? I remember Joe, my husband, he was just like the second that word cancer left the doctor's mouth, he was just absolutely sobbing like inconsolable and I couldn't even I couldn't even function because I was just my ears were ringing and I was just going through the motions of of what I had to do without actually processing it so he rang my parents and my sister and then I rang his parents and I really don't remember a lot after that because it was a lot of waiting around but I did have to ask if I could be seen at a different hospital for my surgery because I had to I was going to have to be airlifted for emergency surgery they couldn't do it in emeralds wow so you just went straight into surgery everything from that moment happened very quickly it did it happened super quickly so they didn't even discharge me they just kept me in the emerald hospital and they said it's going to be much easier to deal with you as an inpatient we just need to find a hospital that has a space for you from has the capacity for emergency surgery because we're so close to Christmas and so we Joe and I stayed in the hospital overnight my parents and my sister drove straight to see us and then the next morning about it was in the morning before lunchtime I got uh, airlifted from the airport to the Mackay Base Hospital which was about three and a half hours away I saw a surgeon who very quickly did a, a physical examination just to see if he could actually feel the tumour down in my rectum, which would kind of give him an idea of what had to be done with surgery. And that was all clear. And then they they put me straight on to prep for a colonoscopy. And I had that the next day. And then I had surgery the day after that. So yeah, I had three days between diagnosis and emergency surgery. Wow. I can't even imagine. I, I can't imagine how that would have been to deal with emotionally and mentally and physically because what a roller coaster what a whirlwind and everything is happening so quickly and you just have to get it done and so when you went into surgery I don't know a whole lot about the surgery for bowel cancer were they able to get a clear margin is that something because I know with breast cancer that is something that they try and get a clear margin is that similar with bowel cancer and then following that 
did you have to undergo treatment? Yeah, so you're right. It is um, similar in the fact that they always try and get a clear margin. Unfortunately for me, it was all just a bit of a mess. My tumour had actually uh, gone outside my large bowel, attached to my small bowel, my appendix and the lining of my abdominal wall. So they did their best to try and get what they thought was clear margins. Um, but after the pathology came back, they, they didn't get clear enough margins. I think it was something like 0.1 millimetres was the clear margin, which is nothing at all. And also they had no idea of the extent of how far it had spread through my lymphatic system. So they took uh, 72 lymph nodes from my um, chest all the way down to my pelvis and eight of those came back uh, positive, including the one closest to my uterus. So they thought, you know, that it was it was pretty much done and over before I'd even started, basically. So, you know, they said the next step is we need to get you on chemo as soon as possible just to try and stop the spread the best we can and give you some more time, basically. There wasn't any kind of real discussion of a cure from the outset. It was all really quick after that too. I had a PET scan so that they could try and get a better picture of what was actually going on. And amazingly at that point, um, other than that localised spread to those nearby organs, it hadn't actually spread to any of my other organs yet. So they were very pleased about that. So I had my portacath fitted in my chest and then I started chemotherapy seven weeks after my surgery. Wow, that's wild. And how many rounds of chemotherapy did you have? So I did six rounds and then had a follow-up PET scan and that was still looking good. And then I did another five rounds where we added in an extra chemical, I suppose the word is, an extra treatment to try and help because things were sitting stable, but they hadn't, you know, nothing had reduced. So they thought they'd try and give this extra treatment a whack. And then after those five rounds, so after 11 rounds in total, I started getting lower back pain and my tumour markers also started creeping up again. And so they sent me for another PET scan and then that came back and my oncologist uh, said that it had my cancer had grown very rapidly and had gone from being clear of all my organs to just everywhere. Um, so uh, pancreas, liver, lungs, chest, abdominal wall lining, throat, and um, then the superior mesenteric artery too, which is the main artery that goes from your heart down to your um, organs, the, the blood supply. Yeah, so that was not the best news when I'd gone through all this terrible, rough, awful chemo for 11 rounds that we really thought was doing something. Holy shit. And did they say how this happened, why this happened, did they have any explanation? I hate the term bad luck, but was it just bad luck? Um, in terms of getting the actual cancer itself, um, we're still kind of waiting for some definite answers, even after all this time, because unfortunately COVID has 
slowed things quite significantly in terms of genetic research. But the initial research that was done that I participated in with Genetic Health Queensland indicated that I have a genetic fault called Lynch syndrome. And it's basically, the easiest way to describe it is a error in your DNA that gives you a predisposition to all types of cancer. The two most uh, the two that you're at most risk of developing are, co are colorectal cancers, so colon or rectal cancer, and uh, endometrial cancer. So luckily for women, they just get two bites at the cherry. <laughs> and it's generally passed down. Um, it's a genetic thing, and it's generally passed down through your family. So um, most people don't even know if they're a carrier of the gene, but roughly one in 300 people are. And if you have the gene, uh, you have a 50 50% chance of passing it on to any children that you have yeah so that's awesome <laughs> was that something that you and your partner had ever spoken about in terms of it being a genetic condition and was fertility ever spoken to you about so um I wasn't even aware that I had Lynch syndrome until I was diagnosed with cancer and after doing genetic testing neither of my parents have it either so I have a really rare subshoot, I guess, of Lynch syndrome called Lynch de novo, which basically means that your patient zero, all genetic mutations have to start somewhere. And so in this case, it started with me and then I could then pass it on. Fertility was a very briefly thrown at me as like an afterthought once we had discussed chemotherapy and that's because obviously it was just as the oncologist was going through the motions of these are all the side effects she's like oh yeah we should you know probably refer you for some fertility preservation talks but I already had a chemotherapy starting date and you know I had to wait a week to get in to see the of a specialist and then based on my age and the aggressiveness of the treatment that I was going under he wanted to actually remove part of or one of my ovaries and then the idea is to re-implant it back in once you're ready to have children um, it's meant to have a much higher success rate than collecting eggs and that sort of thing but that was going to mean that I would have to push back starting chemotherapy by two weeks because that was the earliest I could get in for the surgery. So I was given the choice, but not really, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, it, it was an afterthought. Absolutely. It was almost like a conditional offer. Like, yes, you can do it. Yeah. And if you do decide to do it, it means it's prolonged your treatment starting. Yeah. So it was kind of an afterthought. They'd gone from saying, oh my goodness, we need to get you started on chemotherapy ASAP. Here's your starting date to, oh, but if you want to do fertility preservation, you can, but you'll have to push back the chemotherapy starting date. And, you know, I understand that everyone's got to try and work in together and this was all an emergency and it wasn't expected to happen and stuff like that. But at the time, it really left me feeling like I had to make this huge life-changing decision on top of everything else. Literally, I had days, you know, to make this decision. And they're not small decisions either. Like they're life altering decisions. And it's like, you have to make these really quick decisions without having time to think. And yeah, you know, you just got to 
at that point you kind of just have to trust them and also trust yourself so it's such a hard place to be in and then when you finish treatment you know you've done your 11 rounds of treatment and things like that and then what happened from that kind of phase of your journey so at the time it basically meant that all the conventional forms of treatment that were and are available for bowel cancer would not work on my cancer because it was too aggressive and it was growing too fast to be controlled by chemotherapy so my only options at that point as my oncologist said was to enter end-of-life care and kind of just wait it out or to try and see if there was a clinical trial available anywhere that could give me another option. And I guess when you get told your options are slowly waiting for death or trying absolutely anything else, you're willing to, you know, take a chance on that. Obviously, there was no guarantee she would even find anything. So it was kind of just looking for a needle in a haystack and she also simultaneously referred me down to the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane for a second opinion on my case uh, because when you're in the public health system in Queensland the the Princess Alexandra Hospital is is the best place that you can be that's you know they have massive research into the research institutions there um, you know that's where they're doing all the cutting edge trials and treatments and machines and all that kind of stuff for for cancer treatment and there was a young research oncologist who was sitting in at the team meeting when they were discussing my case and he said you know I've just gotten approval to start recruiting for a a trial using a type of immunotherapy that's previously been used to treat metastatic melanoma. And we're going to give it a go and see how it works with metastatic colorectal cancer. And I think this, this lady could, could be a, a candidate. And the, the most ironic thing out of all of it is that it was that genetic mutation that meant that chemo would never work for me was that genetic mutation that made me eligible for immunotherapy. Wow, that's incredible. I feel like someone was definitely on your side in that moment to, yeah, they were watching out for you. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if you're a spiritual person at all, but I feel like someone was definitely looking after you and wanted the best for you. Oh, it was such a, you know, immunotherapy for colorectal cancer only works in about uh, 10 to 15% of cases and those 10 to 15 percent of cases are people who have those two specific genetic mutations so deficient mismatch repair gene which is where your your dna doesn't recognize faults in your cells like cancer and also the cancer itself has a high level of instability so it likes to bread out as much as it can as fast as it can those two mutations work really, really well with immunotherapy. But yes, ironically, they were the two mutations that were also going to kill me. So it couldn't have worked any other way, I don't think. I think I had to go through that whole process of doing the chemotherapy, finding out it didn't work, and then trying this immunotherapy. I feel like things wouldn't have worked out the way they did if I hadn't gone through that process. Wow. And so I'm guessing at this point you opted to do the immunotherapy and that was a choice that you made and that was something that you decided to do. Mm. And in amongst all of this, it's now 2020 and 
the world is wild? Am I going through a pandemic? You know, with your immunotherapy, was it a successful option for you? Or is it something that you're still going through? Because I know that some immunotherapies can take years and people are on it for years. Yeah, so I started... um... I started on the immunotherapy trial in September 2020 and things had progressed even more in the six weeks between finishing chemotherapy and starting the trial. And in those six weeks, it was purely because I had to go through all the the process to actually be accepted onto the trial, make sure that I had all the right bits and pieces and mutations and I was fit enough and all the rest. And uh, when I went in to sign my paperwork to start the trial, uh, my oncologist said to my husband and my mum, so this was in September, he said to them, uh, you know, we're going to be lucky if she makes it till Christmas with the way things look at the moment, regardless of whether or not this trial works. Far out. And obviously he didn't say that to me, which I'm glad I'm glad of. But the amazing thing, Doctors are so strategic in what they will and won't tell you. And, yeah, obviously they just need you in the strongest place possible. Yeah, of course, of course. And, uh, I mean, he would tell me as much as he could. Um, I have a fantastic relationship with my oncologist now, my second oncologist who I've been with now for two and a half years. And he's always been honest and straightforward with me, but I don't think at that point that was the right thing. I didn't need to hear that, especially, you know, when we were already taking a gamble on the trial. But the amazing thing is that I responded incredibly well to the trial. And after only three treatments, so I had one one treatment of two different immunotherapy drugs every three weeks. And after only three rounds, uh, I had my first scan and I had had a massive massive reduction in the size of my tumors and nodes uh, about 40 percent wow that's phenomenal it was just absolutely incredible we were all really really shocked there's kind of two situations with immunotherapy there is that where you respond very fast very quickly and then it kind of stabilizes and peters off and then other people it's nothing 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 and then suddenly it's just boom and they start responding. So um, I was in that first group and yeah, by within six months of being on the trial, you know, like March, 2021, I'd had 65% reduction in tumors and and nodes. And yeah, I just had my last round of treatment um, on the 4th of August. So I had uh, 25 rounds of treatment over two years And I had my finals. And how often were you doing treatment? What was your cycle? Yeah, it was once every four weeks um, because immunotherapy has a lot longer uh, half-life than than chemotherapy. Um, It it works for a lot longer. So you only need to go for once every four weeks. And it's a lot quicker too. Um, The actual drug infusion only takes about 30 minutes. Wow, that's extremely helpful and handy so that you can still live life very regularly and and things like that. I'm guessing you still suffered with side effects. Do you still have side effects and do you have side effects with immunotherapy? Oh, yeah. Uh, The chemotherapy that I was on for originally is called Folfox and one of the components of it, oxaliplatin, is 
notorious for being an extremely nasty uh, type of chemotherapy and it gives you really severe cold sensitivity to the point where you can't drink or eat anything that's colder than room temperature but it also gives you peripheral neuropathy. It is not joyous at all it's not a fun time. Yeah, unfortunately, in some cases, it can be permanent. Um, And in my case, it is. So my fingers and my hands aren't too bad, but my feet now and my toes are permanently numb. And yeah, that's, that's just one of the side effects, I suppose. But the biggest thing for me was all that fatigue that comes with chemotherapy being one of the biggest side effects. I never really had a chance to recover from it because I went straight from one type of treatment into the other. And Luckily for me, one of the biggest side effects of the main drug I was on for the immunotherapy is also fatigue. Um, So it just exacerbated it even more. So the biggest thing was definitely dealing with just the constant tiredness and sitting around hospitals inside, you know, no fresh air just makes you feel so tired. Absolutely. Hospitals are definitely not the most joyous place to be you know, for so many reasons. So yeah, I can definitely understand all of that. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So you finished treatment in August 22? Yes, that's right. So last month. Amazing. Yeah. So not that long ago at all. So it's been a ride. It's been a wild ride. (laughs) Yeah, I know. You've now finished treatment and where, where are you now? How are you feeling? Yeah. So in terms of where I'm at, with the cancer. So I had my first PET scan in in two years in May 2022, and it showed no evidence of disease, which is fantastic. So that's incredible. Yeah. So I've had uh, what my oncologist calls the complete uh, metabolic response to that type of treatment. And Yeah, so I actually had one more round of or two more rounds of treatment after that because, you know, it's with the trial, it's kind of like signing a contract. You sign up for so many rounds and that's what you do. So I kind of got like a little bit of an extra boost at the end, a boost of juice. And um, yeah, in in terms of how I'm feeling now, just so grateful, (laughs) I guess, to be here, to even be having these kind of conversations and to even be at a point now where I can even consider what my future involves going back to work which is something that I never thought would be possible and just being able to plan for the future in general because for the last you know two years and eight and a bit months I've just been living literally day by day and then I was able to go week by week and then when I started immunotherapy and it started to work then I got all excited because I could actually plan month by month (laughs) but now I'm at a point where I'm thinking you know well what am I going to do in six months you know which is just insane. That is so beautiful I'm so excited for you and I'm so excited that you're in this next phase of life where you can actually look to the future and move forward and you know, do things and make plans and really fully just immerse yourself in life. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's go back to, 
you know, when you were diagnosed and you were going through your treatment and things like that, obviously working was not really an option. And so, you know, how did you handle not being able to work? How were your workplace when you told them and explained the situation to them? How were you financially? You know, it's a, I'm guessing for you, it might've been a really tough time. And so, especially financially, you know, did you have access to you know, charities and government funding and, and things like that. How how was that? Talk us through what that looked like. Yeah, I'm so, so lucky, like I mentioned previously, that I had only just started a job in September and I was diagnosed in December, but I could not have landed in a better place to support me through this shitstorm because not only had I only been in the job for two months, but my diagnosis was so sudden like we had our Christmas party our end of year Christmas party on Friday the 13th (laughs) and I was literally there at the Christmas party with my team and my boss and everyone from work and then the next day I literally just dropped off the face of the earth I wasn't at work on Monday because I was in the middle of a colonoscopy, you know, it so it just happened so fast. There was absolutely no preparation or notice. And it, yeah, just literally I was gone the next day. From day one, the, the entire organisation from the CEO down to my supervisor were, could, could not have been more supportive. There was just, you know, it was absolutely no issue. I just kept in kept in regular contact with my manager and then how things were going and and what the plan was and then you know I started chemotherapy and uh, I did my first round just to kind of see how I felt and what the side effects were and then I started back at work part-time so that was in February 2020. It makes me so happy to hear that your workplace was so understanding and so compassionate through that time because for a lot of people, that's not the case. And for me personally, that was definitely not the way that my workplace was. So I'm really happy that they were like that. Yeah, they they were just in, incredibly, you know, incredibly compassionate. And straight away, you know, the, the CEO was just whatever they need, give it to them. You know, we were really lucky because my husband and I actually worked for the same company in different departments, so different managers and stuff. But that helped as well because it was, I suppose, only having to coordinate through one kind of company instead of two. But, you know, so when I started back at work, I would just, I would get up whenever and I would say, okay, I'm going to try and do a few hours of work today. And I would just, by then, COVID was well and truly on our radars. And so we were all already working from home anyway. So I would just get up and say, okay, I'm going to try and do a few hours work. And, you know, when, when I can't do any more, I'll just message you guys and say, I'm logging off for the day. And I would only work on my off week of chemo too. So like the week I had chemo, I wouldn't work at all. And then the week I, the week I didn't have chemo, I would try and work every day. And I did that for about six months. And then Uh, you know, when we found out that the chemo hadn't worked, then I decided to take six months long service leave. And that's where it kind of got a bit hairy in terms of the financial stuff that you were asking about before. But again, 
so many things in my situation came down to luck, I think, because working in local government, before the laws came in about being able to choose your own superannuation company, everyone who works for local government automatically your super company is the Local Government Institute of Australia, which is now, they've changed their name because they've merged with another company. And uh, two years of income protection at 75% of your wage was automatically built into your super with LGIA. So you didn't even have to apply for it. It was just when you joined that super company, they automatically signed you up for two years of, of um IP. So that honestly, that's what saved me because once I got about halfway through that six months of leave without pay, I realized that I didn't think I would be capable of going back to work anytime soon, not just physically, but emotionally as well. I needed that energy to concentrate on what I was going through, not work. I was able to apply for that income protection and be approved for it. So up until literally Monday of this week, I've been getting paid 75% of my wage. That's incredible. Which has been an immense help. Like, I don't know how we would have survived because I wasn't eligible for disability pension or anything like that because having cancer doesn't automatically make you disabled, apparently. (laughs) Even if you can't, like, walk or function properly or drive a car or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, with Centrelink, it's only job seeker, which... That whole system is so broken and it's so ridiculous because you didn't choose for this to happen to you. Yeah. And then I wasn't eligible for a lot of other kind of financial assistance because apparently my husband earns too much. But as we all know, the actual uh, thresholds that they use are just ludicrous, especially with the cost of living these days. Like you'd barely be surviving if you were just one household, if you were one household on that one wage, which is the threshold you have to be under, you know what I mean? Combined with the cost of living these days. You know, medical expenses, even if you've got things like private health or if you are in the public system and you can get it subsidised slightly, it's still expensive. Like it's a lot. Well, that's it. I mean, even going through the public health system, like you said, so so much is paid for, but, you know, just for example, the cost of my medications that I need to cope with the side effects of treatment are hundreds of dollars a month. And that's not covered. Um, that's, you know, that has to be paid out of my own pocket. So it's those kind of things that aren't taken into account. Yeah, absolutely. And Is there anything that you wish that people around you knew or is there support that you wish that you had have received if people had the right information or do you feel really fortunate in who you had around you at the time? I mean, I feel like I was fairly fortunate, I would say, in the support that I received. I think the one thing I wish more people knew was just how scared I was. I feel like naturally how I am as a person and this is something that I'm working through with my cancer psychologist is that I have a tendency to protect everyone around me at my own detriment. So I think, you know, I pretended a lot of the time that I was okay when I really wasn't. And because no one in my family other than my husband had experienced cancer before, I don't think they realised that that's quite a common reaction for cancer patients is to try and 
not feel like a burden to the people closest to them you know and so I yeah I just wish yeah I wish that more people knew that you know that it's quite common for cancer patients to to try and not feel like a burden I guess is is the key phrase yeah yeah I mean I think it's a society expectation to be strong and to not ask for help and they're very unconscious expectations that have been put out into the world and I think one of the greatest things is being able to ask for help because humans naturally want to help. Yeah I I finally got to a breaking point it was either late October or early November last year I finally got to a breaking point when my cancer bestie died and it really really hit me because she had a young daughter And I just could not deal with the fact, you know, it was that whole like, why her and not me? You know, she had a daughter, I don't have kids, you know, and it was just thinking about how unfair it was. And that was coupled with the fact that it was coming up to my two-year cancerversary, which I was told that originally as, as time went on and people became more honest with me, you know, I was told that I I wouldn't have seen that two-year mark because that's the life expectancy for most people with stage four bowel cancer is two years. So that kind of all imploded and that was when I realised that I had to reach out for help, professional help, you know, that I couldn't keep just trying to deal with it myself and deal with it by talking to my husband and to my family and to friends because it was past the point of just being able to talk things out and feel better I actually needed to learn how to cope with all these emotions especially the survivor's guilt because it came back to the health system my cancer bestie was very much failed by the public health system and that brought up so much uh, anger also guilt you know why why did I have a good experience in the public health system why and why didn't she yeah it was just really hard you know so it does get to a point I think even if you try and shoulder it all yourself I think everyone gets to a breaking point where they realize that they need to deal with things in a much more uh, healthy and mature way Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing with emotions is that if we suppress them, they will just continue to compound and compound and compound and compound. And eventually they will come out. And, you know, whether they come out now or they come out in five years time or they come out in 10 years time or 20 years time, the emotions will go somewhere. And the sooner that you deal with them, the sooner that your body can actually release them. And it's amazing what that can actually do for your body and for your health in, you know, mind, body, soul, all of it. And I just want to let you know that you're incredible. Thank you. And I don't like when people say, I'm sorry. I am genuinely sorry that you lost your best friend during that time. I can't imagine what that would have been like. And yeah, I just, you're, you're just amazing. Yeah, I can't stress enough how important it is for people to find professional help, especially 
you know, someone who specialises in that in the particular medical field that you're experiencing. So whether it's cancer or whether it's chronic illness or, you know, there's always going to be uh, a psychologist or a psychiatrist who specialises in that particular field of, of medicine and dealing with patients who have that, um, you know, illness or disease. And it makes such a difference because they, you know, they have that knowledge of exactly not how it feels, but how you feel going through those situations. And it's so, so helpful. Yeah, 100%. I feel like I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, and I do want to be conscious of the time. So is there anything that you would like to share with the listeners? Is there anything else that you would like to touch upon or talk about? It's a bit of a cliche, but it is so important to know your own body and to listen to your own body and to back yourself when it comes to that. I'm incredibly fortunate that I had a GP who was onto my situation straight away and was willing to get to the bottom of what was happening to me straight away because I have met so many people, not just cancer patients, but, you know, MS patients and chronic fatigue patients and, and et cetera, since I've been diagnosed who weren't listened to. And in the case of, of cancer, it's the difference between being diagnosed at one stage or the other. It's the difference. It's the difference between having a chance at survival and just running down the clock, unfortunately. So it's just so important, especially as women, and I'm going to say it, especially as women, we tend to get fobbed off so much and things are just explained away as some kind of vague woman's problem. But you know your own body and you know what's normal for you and what isn't. So if someone won't listen to you, you just need to keep pushing. And I know it's exhausting to have to navigate the medical system and just tell the same story again and again and again, but you just need to keep pushing until you can find someone who will take you seriously and listen. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's been a really common theme so far on the podcast in a lot of episodes. It's one, know your body, trust your intuition and keep advocating for yourself. And if someone doesn't listen, find someone else. Definitely. You've got to back yourself 100% and just be confident in in you knowing what is normal for you and what isn't. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. We're at the my favourite part of the show, and that is where our guests share a positive mantra, quote, phrase, saying anything that kind of got them through treatment or got get them through day-to-day life now, you know, the positive of it all. Yeah, it's something that uh, my cancer bestie Maggie used to say all the time. Her favourite flower was a sunflower and she used to say, no rain, no flowers. That's always kind of stuck with me. Yeah, that's beautiful. I've never heard that saying or phrase before and I think it's, it's so beautiful and it's so simple and so powerful. And so, you know, you can't have flowers without the rain. So... Yeah, I love that. I just want to take this time to say thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for being vulnerable. I had so many goosebumps through this episode. I held back tears in so many places of it and it's just really powerful and I'm just so proud of you and I think, you know, your message and what you're doing and where you'll go is just incredible and I'm excited for you. 
Oh, thank you so much, Renee. I really, really appreciate it. And you're doing such an amazing thing to helping people, you know, in that age gap that's you know gap it's a gap in our in our system that often gets overlooked and we really need to get more people to to speak about what's happened to them at that age so that we can you know get more people speaking up yeah absolutely well thank you so much for such kind words that's so sweet of you and yeah I truly believe that education is power but only when it is shared and so that's what I'm here doing. But thank you so much for being here. And I'm excited to see what you get up to next. Thank you so much, Renee. We'll keep in touch. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Hello, I'm Healing. Please note that the stories you hear are from real people sharing real experiences and we are not health professionals. If today's episode did spark any concern for you, I encourage you to seek professional help and you can see the show notes for contacts. We are an independent podcast, so please like and subscribe and share with your friends and family. It would truly mean the world. Finally, please tag me on Instagram so I can personally thank you for listening. You can find us at underscore hello, I'm healing. Until next time, bye for now.